Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Okay, today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, I have Megan Sullivan, uh, co-director of Invisible History. Thank you for joining me today, Megan. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit about your background. Uh, so I actually just completed my PhD in the spring um, in education, actually educational studies of diverse populations. I have a master's in uh, women and gender studies and then a bachelor's of art and uh, history and political science. So okay. very interesting. Educational. Yeah, I, um, I, I should have introduced you as doctor then. I mean, I don't recognize it still. I'm just like, oh yeah, that's me. Hi. <laughs> First, after, right after I defended, I had a public speaking engagement like the very next day, and the the woman that was moderating it knew I had just graduated, and she it, introduced me as Dr. Sullivan, and I just sat there. <laughs> Who is like, that? Oh, oh, hi. Hello. Yes. <laughs> it was so nice to be here. Thank you. That's so funny. It's, it's taking some time. Yeah. So, um, so what, what? drew you into preservation or telling the history, telling stories? Well, so, I mean, I've, you know, I was always interested in history, uh, but for the, the work that I do currently, a friend of mine, uh, Josh Burford, uh, I was working at the University of Alabama at Birmingham doing LGBTQ um, education resources, events, things like that. And he was doing this similar at UNC Charlotte. And we were talking about how, the work kind of felt devoid of historical context. We're both very interested in history. He had been doing actually some um, queer preservation work in Charlotte. And, you know, the need for integrating that into really all aspects of queer resources and support and education and the lack of information around the queer South, especially. Right. So, you know, I'd always had an interest in it, but it wasn't um, widely available. You know, we know a lot about Stonewall. We know things about Harvey Mill, you know, the big, the coastal cities right. are fairly well represented, um, but we didn't know a whole lot about like local Alabama history or Southern Mississippi history and particularly around queer people. And so that's something that, you know, I was very interested in exploring, you know, marginalized history, preserving it and what that means. Um, I also, not to get super woo-woo about it, oh, but, no, whatever you want to say, <laughs> but like, you know, the, the more I've done this work, cause I don't, I don't have a lot of human feelings. That's not really my thing, but you know, the more I do this work and I see particularly intergenerational connections over objects and like the power that an actual object can hold 
And when someone touches that, they're touching something that someone else has made or had their hands on. And there's this transfer of experience that happens in that moment right. that you really can't replicate through digital preservation or a, 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 a book or an article. There's just something powerful about seeing something that someone else has had their hands on decades before you that I think is really empowering and something missing in a lot of like movement work and really important. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that um, I talk a lot on the podcast. Anybody who's a regular listener knows that I often refer to a book that a political scientist wrote. Um, and he didn't, re- I don't think he realized he was writing a preservation book, but he talks a lot about collective memory mm. and how the places are still there. But if nobody remembers what's important about them, and what the things that have happened there, whether they've died or they moved away, you know, that, that those, those places lose their importance. Absolutely. And, um, I think that that's the same thing, like with, with material objects, like it's just a touch point in history of, of something that we can all experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for the queer community too, because of the AIDS epidemic and a generation that was almost eviscerated, right. There is a gap in knowledge handing down because, you know, oral history traditions, bringing people into the community so that they learn the leaders, you know, drag queens have always been very important storytellers in the community. Uh, And because of AIDS and and what that did to the community and the priority shifting around just keeping people alive. Yeah, public health. Yeah. Yeah, public health of people who didn't have any public health knowledge or experience. Right. um, That there's been a huge gap in the transfer of information. And then, you know, I'm a millennial, I'm elder millennial, millennials, Gen Xers, we haven't done a good job in coming back and filling in those gaps to, you know, to keep that information flowing to younger people. So that's definitely something that I'm interested in is like, how can we transfer this community knowledge from our elders into you know, middle-aged folks and our youth. Well, and, and as you were talking about that, it, it made me think, well, it made me think of two things. So I'll I'll share both of them. (laughs) Um, the, um, I, I did a podcast maybe a year ago with the woman who wrote a book about the green book. So the book that, that black people use to travel around the country safely, uh, to know where to stop and where to go. And one of her theories in the book, and I've thought about it a lot since then, was that integration was the worst thing that happened to the black community Mm. because the people with money integrated and Mm. left it. And then that changed the dynamics within the community. And I've thought about that. And and I, 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 the reason that I thought about that with what you were saying was that it's easy. It's not, it's not, I'm not trying to say it's completely easy, but the, generationally, cause I'm a little, I'm probably a little bit older than you. The way I see kids that are in high school and college being accepted and being open with who they are mostly is way different than even when I was in school 25 years ago. Right. And I wonder if some of that sense of community will get lost. Um, so that's, that's just something that I was thinking. I don't know the answer to that. It just something that popped into my mind as you were talking about that. I mean, I, it's so, it's like you, you're in my brain because that's something that I talk about a lot is 
while we are seeing more representation, more acceptance, more visibility for queer and trans, especially youth, mm -hmm. um, I don't know, in, in the South, you know, there's lots of laws. Right. Well, yeah. They're very under attack, but mm -hmm. like kind of in the mainstream, opinions are changing despite our legislatures. And at the same time, we are very much so losing community because, you know, queer identities for a long time you know, coming out was this moment of entree into the queer community. That's how it originally was intended. You went and you said, I am one of you. And now it's because identities have become very individualized, which can be really great. Right. It's more of a, I am different, please accept me, right? It's, a, it's an entree into the straight cis world right. uh, and asking for acceptance instead of like claiming this community in this space. And being part and, of that. Yeah, I think there's, and I think there's like, power in both things. So I, I, this is something I was thinking about like this from a social construct kind of thing. Um, the other thing, and I've, I've started reading um, this book, it's called Out in Central Pennsylvania. Yeah. Um, and Barry Loveland is, is listed as one of the authors. He was the um, head of our state office of historic preservation until he retired. And mm -hmm. so he's coming from a preservation background and he, he decided he opened up a, 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 a LGBTQ um, a center to document the history of the, of the movement within rural central Pennsylvania. So it's, it's pretty interesting, but the, the one thing that I was, as I was reading about and talking to some other people, I um, thought about, cause I, I'm also the executive director of our countywide preservation. So I was think I was looking for places to highlight for, for June for, um, and uh, on our social media. And the two places in Lancaster City that were associated with the gay community have both now closed because there's more opportunities to go into other, other establishments. And I've thought about, you know, within a generation that people might not even remember what they were. And so like, th those are the kinds of things that I'm thinking about. That was my second thought. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, you know, like if you look back at the gay bar guides from mm -hmm. the seventies, eighties and nineties, there are so many more in cities like if you take Birmingham Alabama for example right triple the amount maybe even more in and in, in those years than there are now and part of that is because young people aren't drinking as much bars aren't, aren't as popular as they used to be dating is happening on apps but right online I think online has also yeah. been a big social shift just Absolutely. for everybody's dating yeah but bars really served multiple functions then, you know, they weren't just hookup spots. They weren't just right. drinking spots. They were community places. They were organizing spaces. And so, you know, while there is different representation, absolutely things need to you know, flex and flow with time. We're losing so much uh, because it's not been prioritized and preserved and researched. So right. while, while we are going to adapt and grow, we have to make sure that we keep those memories and those stories intact and can pass them along because so much of what we're facing right now, we've been here before, right? We've had this trans panic before we've had the queer predator panic before, mm -hmm. like we've been here and people, you know, were able to organize and advocate with less communication tools. So we need to learn from their efforts. Right. No, I, I agree. And, and, um, I always say, you know, the, the more that I research on history in general and people, 
the more that I realized that we're really like all the same as we were 200 years ago, like people haven't changed, like, you know, like everything that motivates people and, and how people react to really hasn't changed that much. Just, just the technology we interact with has. Right. So, so I, so I agree. So we've kind of talked about it a little bit, but, but tell me, tell me about the invisible history project. So the invisible history project, we're a nonprofit. We're 501 C three. We're based in Birmingham, Alabama, but we are locating, collecting, preserving, and researching uh, queer and trans history in Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, and we're moving into the Florida panhandle. Mm -hmm. We don't have a traditional archive space. Like we're not an archive. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're a community-based project. So we act as an intermediary between resource institutions like libraries, universities, museums, and, you know, everyday folks and organizations, LGBTQ people and, and organizations. And so we make sure that we find these collections, we, we collect them, and we get them into our repository partners. We have, I don't even know now, I could, I'd have to look it back up, with several, <laughs> over a dozen in across our states. We try to keep collections local, and then we work with universities and other folks to have those collections processed with the help of interns, and then research very quickly so that they're getting out there. We do things like exhibits, we do things, we do public talks, uh, we have a social media presence where we're really trying to push the information that we're learning back into the communities so the communities can benefit from our efforts. Uh, we also run Queer History South, which is a network of about 500 folks who are invested in uh, queer and trans Southern archiving history and education around those topics. Um, and so, yeah, that's what we do. That, that's, that I think that's exciting and, and great work. Um, I, I think that showing that this isn't like something new, that this mm-hmm. has been part of the community forever, mm-hmm. that this, I think that that really helps people who may not understand, understand. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's important work because I think that I just, I, I did a podcast right before this um, and it'll actually be the week before you, <laughs> but we talked about um, um, she's doing like grassroots um, preservation and storytelling. And we talked a lot about, you know, if, if it's really hard to view people as other, if you know, people that are, that are like you and that they're the same as you. Mm -hmm. And I think that this kind of work really helps to not just um, preserve the history because that's also important, but also show that, that, that it's not, yeah, it's not something new that's been invented. This is something that's been part of the community. So I, I think that that's really important. How have like, do you're, like when you're doing the exhibits and things like that, how have they been received? Oh, they've been received well. We've only done one in-person one because, you know, COVID pushed right. everything back, but uh, we've had an online one about uh, HIV. We, the one we did, uh, our HIV organizing history in Alabama, we, uh, we actually have been working with some folks. We have an exhibit up right now at the University of Alabama. Their LGBT group is putting it on. So we're kind of loaning them materials for it. Um, and we've worked with several people in that capacity. We did one recently where we had students pull data from Alabama's longest running LGBT publication. It's called the Alabama Forum. And we did a, a history of Birmingham through the forum, mm-hmm. which was really nice. Yeah, that's. Uh, and we're working on, oh gosh, I think it's four more. <laughs> oh my goodness. Two years. Yeah. Yeah. So we really, <clears throat> really do want to prioritize getting the information out to people. Uh, so people can get interested and get excited and start feeling connected to their own histories. 
it's been it's been very well received it is a very weird time to be doing things mm-hmm. uh, even post because people are like eager to be in person um but they also kind of don't I don't know people they want to party a little bit <laughs> you know, you want to get together and have fun. So I don't know if people are like super hyper-focused on, on history right now. Right. Um, But yeah, no, they've been very well received and we're, you know, looking forward to the the next several that we've got coming out. Oh, that that's exciting. I, um, I, I agree. I think people are just kind of ready to like, just come out into the world. (laughs) Like (laughs) they're tired of being at home. (laughs) Yeah. I've seen a lot of the pride. I haven't gone to any, but I've seen a lot of pride festivals and man, they were packed this year. So like people are like ready to have some fun and be around each other. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think that we all, I'm speaking for myself, but I think that I I reflect the majority of people that the past, the past couple of years have been really hard because it is, we we are social and we we need to connect and, and, and virtual is not the same. Oh, people are, and well, and that's definitely something because virtual is, and the way that people are so able to use virtual tools now in a way they couldn't before, it's very standard. It's really opens up a lot of opportunities for, you know, especially people like us to do, to have a large geographic area to do events, to do talks so we can get a lot of people. And at the same time, folks are burnt out of virtual. They are so sick of it. They don't even want to sit at their computers anymore than they have to. So it's kind of a double-edged sword there. There's people are more able to do it, but less people want to do it. It's kind of something, you know, enjoyable on the side. That's not part of their job. Right. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, so tell me about some of the interesting or notable stories that you've been able to document. I mean, there's so many. Uh, I mean, some of the things that I really enjoy are, because one of the things we do is, is bust stereotypes about the South, especially the queer South, you know, as being 20 years behind, as not having people in it, as being super conservative, super regressive, you know, all the terrible stereotypes we hear about the South that just frankly aren't true. Um, you know, the South is the home to the largest percentage of queer and trans people in the whole country. Uh, over half of all Black folks live in the South in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So it's extremely diverse. Um, and our governments don't necessarily represent our people for lots of reasons. Right. And so one of the things I love are stories that highlight how on par we have been with all the other movements. So you know, after Stonewall, there's the Ansley Mall riots in Atlanta, Georgia that happens in 69. It's just a few months after Stonewall riots, which leads to the Gay Liberation Front. Uh, it leads to the first Pride, and I think it's 71 or 72 in Atlanta, which is on par with everybody else. Mississippi actually has an entire state, not just a city that's calling themselves a state, but an actual statewide multi-chapter uh, uh, gay organization in 1973. They're called the Mississippi Gay Alliance. Oh my goodness. Right? I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah. And they have chapters all the way from the coast all the way up to Memphis. So they are actually providing support. They're doing a lot of political work. Uh, they're helping other queer groups get, you know, nonprofit status. They're fundraising. They have a, a newsletter that they're putting out that eventually becomes a newspaper. And so they're doing a lot of work. Uh, Alabama, we have our first LGBT center in 1977. Uh, in Auburn, and I believe it was 70, 1971, Auburn, Alabama is super, super rural, super small, very conservative. 
they have a radical leftist communist super pro marijuana like they are obsessed with weed uh, <laughs> gay liberation front in auburn and they were doing follies which were you know these shows and and dancing and they were holding galas and doing all sorts of stuff and were very unapologetically queer they're extremely radical so we see you know the south being political being organized right at the same pace it just doesn't necessarily look the same as it does in other areas nor does it gain the same kind of exposure right uh, particularly more well-resourced areas got Hmm. that's interesting because that those yeah those the in the 70s that was very you know very early to be you know very public oh yeah Um, just because, you know, it was still, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know exactly when, but I'm, I think it was still like listed as a, as a disorder within the psychology, you know? Oh yeah. They yeah. were doing uh, raids and setting up gay men in parks and stuff all the way, particularly in Alabama, all the way up until the two into the 2000s. Right. Yeah. So, you know, there was sodomy laws had, were still very legal being very much so enforced. enforced. Yeah. Um, and so you know, it was, it was definitely, um, a risk. There's no, I mean, there still aren't, but there was no employment protections, right? No right. school protections there. You know, there wasn't any funding for the, the schools on campuses yet. So definitely people being, I mean, it, it was a, a kind of a niche paper. It's, it comes from right. Praxis. Yeah. So it was definitely for your leftists, your, your, your pot smokers and people who like motorcycles. That seems to be like the, <laughs> all of the those things together. <laughs> It was, it was a wild time. It was, it, I love it. You, people should go to Auburn uh, to their special collections and type in Praxis, P-R-A-X-I-S and look it up. It is wild. I loved it. I did a talk at Auburn to a class uh-huh. and showed their students and they were like, oh, this is great. It's just, <laughs> it's just so good. Um, so yeah, the, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of things that we were doing down here that were sometimes ahead of, but definitely on par with Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that, I mean, just, just as someone who's never lived, I've lived in the West and I've lived in the East as someone who's never lived in the South. I can, that's surprising to me. So I'm, I'm glad that you're, you're researching and preserving and, and telling those stories because I think it, it, it changes, I think it would help to change the perception. Oh, absolutely. And you know, our primary purpose is empowering queer and trans Southerners, like letting us know our own history, having access to it, but secondary is challenging these negative and harmful stereotypes about what it means to be Southern, what it means to be queer and trans in the South. We are not, you know, a forgotten, uh, pitiful place to be because a lot of times all we hear about the South is deficit and struggle and hardships. Right. And while those things are here, they are everywhere for one. And then two, there are moments of joy. And if all we hear is, how bad things are and all these deficit models, then we will internalize them and become them. Like if we can't hear or know of anything better then how are we going to know what we can be? And so these histories can really show us, Oh, look what other people have done. Oh, I'm starting from a foundation. That's actually pretty cool and progressive. Yeah. That that's very true. I, I think that that's, that's great. Um, a great other side to your mission, you know, the, the stereotype busting, um, so what, from your vantage point, what trends or challenges do you see in, in this preservation? Um, I guess, I, I don't know, fields the right, that's not the right word, but that's what came into my brain. So I'll say it. 
Well, I guess generally speaking, you know, work well, I guess with queer collections, there's a distrust with communities, mm -hmm. especially state funded communities in the South. Um, they're, you know, worried. And we do have multiple state archive partners mm -hmm. and where we, we store our materials. And but people are very distrustful. Mm -hmm. They're distrustful of universities who have a very conservative lean to them or very controlled by state legislatures. Yeah. And so there's a lot of work to do around vetting our partners as well as gaining trust with the institutions like we right. are with the individuals. We want the individuals to trust us so that they can trust our judgment on our partners. Right. Yeah. And so <clears throat> that sort of disconnect that, that people have, you know, we've lost so much that people don't have access to archives or they don't know to preserve them or people passed away and their stuff was destroyed, that it's really critical right now to make sure that we're, that we're working with these, these institutions because, you know, we could start our own archive but that is extremely expensive, right? It's it extremely limiting and it really limits how much community work and pulling in we can do because right. we're having to maintain a building. Well, and you're talking to multi-state. So like that would yeah. be, that would be really, really challenging. I think that the way that you're doing it will allow you to reach more people. Um, well, and that's, a, I mean, there, I, have, I have three problems. So there's another one that's an issue. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> and so the other one is that a lot of, particularly Southern materials have been taken away from us. Um, so they're no longer here. They're at some of the bigger, more like visibly queer mm -hmm. uh, archives. You know, they're on the coast or at big private institutions that are 100% inaccessible to people. Right. They are not digitizing on, on pace to keep up with the demand for, you know, what we would like to see to do research projects. They're hard to get to, <laughs> and they're so far away from the communities that they really can't, you know, create the kind of change that they could if they were nearby where people could access them. Right. Yeah. Um, and so that's an issue. The other one that is very like personal for me is doing humanities work, especially archival work is uh, not sexy. It's <laughs> not a product per se. It's not a direct service. And especially at a time where there's so much need like there is right now. It is very hard to get funding. Right. It is hard to tell, to get funding, to go and put old things in a box. <laughs> it is not like a good sale. People don't understand archiving pro pro the process of it. Uh, corporations won't, you know, they're not slapping their, their logo on a, you know, bank box that you go to, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's not a thing that's happening. So it is a very challenging time for community archives, especially public history projects to, um, unless we're constantly doing things like exhibits and programming and the actual archiving itself is hard to generate money for. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that. We're the um, community-wide preservation um, uh, group that I'm the executive director part-time for were in the process of digitizing our archives and it is a huge project like and I did not I it's so far out of my like realm of like expertise that we had to hire we hired I asked the board to let me hire a consultant because I'm like this I, I mean I know how to use a scanner but beyond that oh. like I don't know any of this it's so expensive it's so time consuming it is and the, the thing too is like you know going and getting a collection it, it could have taken five, 10, 15 interactions with that donor to get that box or a couple of boxes that's really not accounted for. It's kind of hard to like quantify right. yeah. relationship building. 
Um, and so, you know, you can't really just go to a, a, a grant person and be like, hey, this is how many hours we're spending per, because it's just so ambiguous. Um, and so, yeah, it is definitely, I think it's amazing. I think it's super important, but it's not like funding sexy yeah, for most right, people. Right, yeah. And there, that, yeah, they, um, there's a, in, in building preservation, like um, there's a couple of funds that I'm aware of that will give you money to maintain like a nonprofit building or something like that. Mm -hmm. But that's usually like not what people want to pay for. Like they want to pay for something else. They don't want to pay for yeah. the HVAC system. You know? Yes. Right. They want to put their name on the front door right. or they want to, yeah. you know, have a program where people come in and see a painting or something. Yeah. yeah it is the, the basic operating cost of humanities work is extremely expensive uh, time consuming and not well-funded. <laughs> no, it's not. So, well, how can, um, how can we help you support your mission? Uh, I think one of the best ways that people can is to follow us on our social medias. Um, we have a website, invisiblehistory.org, uh, but then you can find us on Twitter, uh, Instagram, Facebook, and we're slowly but surely moving into TikTok, although... I feel like I'm almost too old for it, but <laughs> uh, so if you look up Invisible Histories Project on any of those, we'll pop up. Uh, that's a really great way for people to follow us as well as sharing all of those things. We've got events and things coming up that people can can look at on there. It's it's the okay. best, most up to date way to to see what's going on. Perfect, thank you. And and is there an event that you'd like to promote? Yeah, so the Queer History South Conference, it is a conference of about 300 people. It's going to be in Dallas, Texas at the very last uh, weekend in September. Uh, it is a conference for archivists, historians, people doing work around uh, LGBTQ Southern history, uh, archiving and preservation, research, those sorts of things in the South. Uh, and so I would definitely, you know, if you go to invisiblehistory.org slash QHS, yeah, people can register, they can find out more, they can see the full schedule. There's going to be in-person uh, for uh, 300 people, but there will also be some recorded sessions that people can watch if they would like to as well. Okay, very good. Um, before we wrap up, is there anything that um, you thought of while we were talking that you wanted to share, maybe that I didn't ask you? Uh, no, I don't actually think so. Okay, very good. Well, how can our listeners get in contact with you or, or the organization? I mean, always social media, the website are great. If you've got direct questions, um, you can email us at contact at invisiblehistory.org. We're getting ready to release our internship list for the fall and the spring. So if students or if, you, if faculty have any students that would like um, an internship position for course credit or a practicum experience. We have both archival and research positions. So those will be coming out soon. You can email us and we'll go ahead and send it to you. If, if somebody okay, does. very good. Well, thank you so much. I, I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Have a, have a good rest of your day. You too. Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.